Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Chapter 16 of The Middle of Things. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Middle of Things by J. S. Fletcher. Chapter 16 The Outhouse. Near the police station, Viner fell in with his solicitor, Feltham, who turned a corner in a great hurry. Feltham's first glance showed his client that their purposes were in common. "'Seen that paragraph in the evening papers?' said Feltham, without preface. "'By George! That's serious news. What a pity that Hyde ever made that statement about his doings on the night of the murder. It would have been far better if he'd held his tongue altogether.' "'He insisted on it in the end,' answered Viner. "'And in my opinion he was right. But you think this is very serious?' "'Serious? Yes!' exclaimed Feltham. "'He says he spent the night in a shed in the Harrow Road district. "'Now the things that were taken from Ashton's body are discovered in such a place. "'Nay, the very place, for, if you remember, Hyde particularized his whereabouts. "'What's the obvious conclusion? What can anybody think?' "'I see two or three obvious conclusions, and I think several things,' remarked Viner. "'I'll tell you what they are when you've seen Drillford.' "'I'm not alarmed about this discovery, Feltham. "'I think it may lead to finding the real murderer.' "'You see further than I do, then,' muttered Feltham. "'I only see that it's highly dangerous to Hyde's interests, "'and I want first-handed information about it.' "'Drillford, discovered alone in his office, "'smiled as the two men walked in. "'There was an irritating, I told you so, air about him.' "'Ah,' he said, "'I see you gentlemen have been reading the afternoon papers. "'What do you think about your friend now, Mr. Viner?' "'Precisely what I thought before and shall continue to think,' retorted Viner. "'I've seen no reason to alter my opinion.' "'Oh, but I guess Mr. Feltham doesn't think that way,' replied Drillford, with a shrewd glance at the solicitor. "'Mr. Feltham knows the value of evidence, I believe.' "'What is it that's been found exactly?' asked Feltham. Drillford opened a locked drawer, lifted aside a sheet of cardboard, and revealed a fine gold watch and chain and a diamond ring. These lay on two or three sheets of much crumpled paper of a peculiar quality. "'There you are,' said Drillford. "'Those belonged to Mr. Ashton. There's his name on the watch and a mark of his inside the ring. They were found early this morning.' hidden in the very place in which Hyde confessed that he spent most of the night after Ashton's murder, a shed belonging to one Fisher, a greengrocer, up the Harrow Road. "'Who found them?' demanded Feltham. "'Fisher himself,' answered Trilford. "'He was pottering about in his shed before going to Covent Garden. He wanted some empty boxes, and in pulling things about he found these. Couldn't have made a more important find, I think.' "'Where are these things loose?' asked Viner. "'Wrapped loosely in the paper they're lying on,' replied Drillford. 
Viner took the paper out of the drawer, examined it, and lifted it to his nose. "'I wonder if Hyde really did put those things there,' he said. "'How Hyde came to be carrying about with him these sheets of paper, which had certainly been used before for the wrappings of chemicals or drugs.' Feltham pricked his ears. "'Eh?' he said. "'What's that?' "'Smell for yourself,' answered Viner. "'Let the inspector smell, too.' I draw the attention to both of you to the fact, because we'll raise that point whenever it's necessary. Those papers have at some time been used to wrap some strong-smelling drug. No doubt of it, said Feltham, who was applying the papers to his nose. Smell them, Drillford. As Mr. Viner says, what would Hyde be doing with this stuff in his pocket? That's a mere detail, remarked Drillford impatiently. These chaps that mooch about as Hyde was doing pick up all sorts of odds and ends. He may have pinched them from a chemist's shop. Anyway, there's the fact it will hang him on it, you'll see. We shall never see anything of the sort, said Viner. You're on the wrong tack, Inspector. Let me put two or three things to your intelligence. Where's Ashton's purse? I know for a fact that Ashton had a purse full of money when he went out of his house that night. Mrs. Killenhall and Miss Wickham saw him take it out just before he left to give some cash to the parlour-maid and they saw him replace it in his trousers' pocket. I also know for another fact where he spent money that evening. In short, I know now a good deal about his movements for some hours before his death. "'Then you ought to tell us, Mr. Viner,' said Drillford, a little sulkily. "'You ought not to keep any information to yourself.' "'You are going on the wrong tack, or I might,' retorted Viner. "'But you'll know all in good time.' "'Now I ask you again where's Ashton's purse. "'You know as well as I do that when his clothing was examined, "'almost immediately after his death, all his effects were gone. "'Watch, chain, rings, pocket-book, purse. "'If Hyde took the whole lot, do you think he would ever have been such a consummate ass "'as to wait until next morning to pawn that ring in Edgware Road? "'The idea is preposterous.' "'And why, pray?' demanded Drillford, obviously nettled at the turn which the conversation was taking. "'I wonder your own common sense doesn't tell you,' said Viner, with intentional directness. "'If Hyde took everything from his victim, as you say he did, he would have had a purse full of ready money. He could have gone off to some respectable lodging-house. He could have put a hundred miles between himself and London by breakfast-time. He would have had ready money to last him for months. But he was starving when he went to the pawnbroker's. Hyde told you the truth. He never had anything but that ring.' "'Good,' muttered Feltham. "'Good, Viner. That's one in the eye for you, Drillford.' "'Another thing that you're forgetting, Inspector,' continued Viner. "'I suppose you attach some value to probabilities. Do you, as a sensible man, believe for one moment that Hyde, placed in the position he is, would be such a fool, such a societal fool, as to tell you about that particular shed if he'd really hidden those things there? The mere idea is absurd, ridiculous.' "'Good again, Viner.' said Feltham. He wouldn't. Drillford, obviously ill-pleased, put the strong-smelling paper and the valuables which had been wrapped in it back in the drawer and turned the key. "'All very well, talking and theorizing, Mr. Viner,' he said sullenly. "'We know from his own lips that Hyde did spend the night in that shed. If he didn't put these things there, who did?' Viner gave him a steady look. "'The man who murdered and robbed Ashton,' he answered, "'and that man was not Hyde.' "'You'll have that to prove,' retorted Drillford derisively. "'I know what a jury'll think with all these evidence before it.' 
"'We shall prove a good many things that'll surprise you,' said Viner quietly, "'and you'll see, then, the foolishness of jumping at what seems to be an obvious conclusion.' He motioned Feltham to follow, and going outside, turned in the direction of the Harrow Road. "'I'm going to have a look at the place where these things were found,' he said. "'Come with me. You see for yourself.' he continued as they walked on, how ridiculous it is to suppose that Hyde planted them. The whole affair is plain enough to me. The real murderer read, or may have heard, Hyde's statement before the coroner, and in order to strengthen the case against Hyde, and divert suspicion from himself, sought out this shed and put the things there. Clumsy! If Hyde had ever had the purse, which more certainly disappeared with the rest of the property, he'd never have gone to that shed at all. "'We'll make the most of all that,' said Feltham. "'But I gathered from what you said just now to Trilford "'that you know more about this case than you've let out. "'If it's in Hyde's favor, "'I can't tell you what I know,' answered Viner. "'I do know some strange things which will all come out in good time. "'If we bring the murder home to the right man, "'Hyde, of course, will be cleared. "'I'll tell everything as soon as I can, Feltham.' They walked quickly forward until they came to the higher part of the horror road. There, at a crowded point of that dismal thoroughfare, where the shops were small and mean, Feltham suddenly lifted a finger towards a sign which hung over an open front filled with the cheaper sorts of vegetables. "'Here's the place,' he said. "'A corner shop. The shed, of course, will be somewhere behind.' Viner looked with interest at the refuge which Hyde had chosen after his hurried flight from the scene of the murder. A shabby-looking street ran down from the corner of the greengrocer's shop. The first twenty yards of it on that side were filled with palings, more or less broken and dilapidated. Behind them lay a yard in which stood a van, two or three barrows, a collection of boxes and baskets and crates, and a lean-to shed built against the wall of the adjoining house. The door of this yard hung loosely on its rusty hinges. Viner saw at once that nothing could be easier than for a man to slip into this miserable shelter unseen. "'Let's get hold of the tenant,' he said. "'Better show him your card, and then he'll know we're on professional business.' The greengrocer, a dull-looking fellow who was measuring potatoes showed no great interest on hearing what his callers wanted. Summoning his wife to mind the shop, he led Viner and Feltham round to the yard and opened the door of the shed. This was as untidy as the yard and filled with a similar collection of boxes, baskets, and crates. In one corner lay a bundle of empty potato sacks. The greengrocer at once pointed to it. "'I reckon that's where the fellow got a bit of sleep that night,' he said. "'There was nothing to prevent him getting in here. "'No locks or bolts on either gate of the yard or that door. "'He may have been in here many a night, for all I know.' "'Where did you find those valuables this morning?' asked Viner. "'The greengrocer pointed to a shelf in a corner above the bundle of sacking. "'There,' he answered, "'I wanted some small boxes to take down to Covent Garden,' and in turning some of these over I came across a little parcel, wrapped in paper, slipped under a box that was turned top downwards on the shelf, you understand. So of course I opened it, and there was the watch and chain and ring. "'Just fold it in the papers that you handed to the police,' suggested Viner. "'Well, there was more paper about him than what I gave to Inspector Drillford. 
said the greengrocer. "'A well-wrapped-up bit of parcel it was. "'There's the rest of the paper there where I threw it down.' "'He pointed to some loose sheets of paper which lay on the sacking, "'and Viner went forward, picked them up, "'looked quickly at them, and put them in his pocket. "'I suppose you never heard anything about that night?' "'he asked, turning to the greengrocer. "'Not I,' the man replied. "'I sleep too sound to hear aught of that sort. "'There's nothing in here that's of any value.' "'No, a dozen folk could come into this yard at night, and we shouldn't hear em. "'We sleep at the front of the house.' Viner slipped some silver into the greengrocer's hand, and led Feltham away. And when they reached a quieter part of the district, he pulled out the papers which he had picked out of the corner in the shed, and held them in front of his companion's eyes. "'We did some good in coming up here after all, Feltham,' he said, with a grim smile. "'It wasn't a mere desire to satisfy idle curiosity that made me come.' I thought I might, by sheer good luck, hit on something or some idea that would help. Now then, look at these things. That's a piece of newspaper from out of a copy of the Melbourne Argus of September 6th the last. Likely thing for Langton Hyde to be carrying in his pocket, eh? Good heavens, that's certainly important, exclaimed Feltham. And so is this, and perhaps much more so, said Viner, making a second exhibit. "'That's a sheet of brown wrapping paper with the name and address of a famous firm of wholesale druggists and chemical manufacturers on one side, printed. It's another likely thing for Hyde to possess and to carry about, isn't it?' "'And the same bitter, penetrating smell about it,' said Feltham. "'Hyde, of course, if Drillford is correct, had all this paper in his pocket when he went into that shed,' said Viner. "'But I have a different idea.' and a different theory. Here, he went on, folding his discoveries together neatly, you take charge of these, and take care of them. They may be of more importance than we think. He went home full of thought, restored the sisters to something like cheerfulness by assuring them that the situation was no worse, and possibly rather better, and spent the rest of the evening in his study, silently working things out. Viner, by the time he went to bed, had evolved an idea— and it was still developing and growing stronger when he set out next morning to accompany Mr. Pauls to Lord Ellingham's solicitors. End of chapter 16 The Outhouse Chapter 17 of The Middle of Things This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Middle of Things by J. S. Fletcher Chapter 17 The Claimant Carlos and Driver practiced their profession of the law in one of the old houses on the south side of Lincoln's Inn Fields, a house so old that it immediately turned Viner's thought to what he had read of the day's wherein Inigo Jones exercised his art, up the stately frontages and duels were fought in the gardens which London children now sport in. In one of these houses lived Blackstone, in another Erskine, one ancient roof once sheltered John Milton, another heard the laughter of Nell Gwynne, up the panelled staircase which Mr. Paul and his companion were presently conducted, the feet of many generations had trod. 
and the room into which they were duly conducted was so old-world in appearance, with its oaken walls and carving, and old-fashioned furniture, that nothing but the fact that its occupants wore twentieth-century garments would have convinced Viner that he had not been suddenly thrown back to the days of Queen Anne. Lord Ellingham was already there when they arrived, in conference with his solicitor, Mr. Carless, a plump, rosy, active gentleman who wore mutton-chop whiskers, and, secretly, prided himself on his likeness to the type of fox-hunting squire. It was very evident to Viner that both solicitor and client were in a state of expectancy, bordering on something very like excitement and Mr. Carless, the preliminary greetings being over, plunged at once into the subject. "'I say, Paul,' he exclaimed, turning at once to his fellow practitioner, "'this appears to be a most extraordinary business. His lordship has just been telling me all about the two calls he had yesterday, first from two men whom he had never seen before, then from you two, who were also strangers.' He has also told me what both lots of his callers had to say, and hang me if I ever heard of two such curious unfoldings coming one on top of the other. Sounds like a first-class mystery. You forget, remarked Mr. Paul with a glance at Lord Ellingham, that we don't know, Mr. Viner and myself, what it was that his lordship's first couple of callers told him. He left that until today. Mr. Carless looked at his client, who nodded his head as if in assent to something in the glance. "'Well, as I'm now in possession of the facts,' said he, "'I'll tell you, Paul. His lordship has given me a clear account of what his first caller said, and what you and Mr. Viner added to it. The two men whom you saw coming away from Ellingham House were Methley and Woodlesford, two solicitors who are in partnership in Edgware Road. I know of them.' I think we've had conveyancing business with them once or twice. Quite a respectable firm, in a smallish way, you know. But all right, so far as I know anything of them. Now they came to Lord Ellingham yesterday afternoon with a most extraordinary story. His lordship tells me that he learned from your talk with him yesterday afternoon that you are pretty well acquainted, you and Mr. Viner, with his family history, so I'll go straight to the point.' What do you think Methley and Woodlesford came to tell him? You'd never guess. I won't try, answered Mr. Paul. What then? Mr. Carless smiled grimly. That the long-lost Lord Marketstoke was alive and in England, he said. Here, in fact, in London. Mr. Paul smiled, too, but his smile was not grim. It was, rather, the smile of a man who hears what he has been expecting to hear. "'I thought it would be something of that sort,' he exclaimed. "'Aye, I fancied that would be the game.' "'You think it a game?' suggested Mr. Carless. "'And a highly dangerous one, as somebody will find out,' responded Mr. Paul. "'But what did these fellows really say?' "'His lordship will correct me if I miss anything pertinent.' answered Mr. Carless, with a glance at his client. They said this, that they had been called upon by a gentleman now staying at one of the private residential hotels in Lancaster Gate, who was desirous of legal assistance, 
in an important matter, and had been recommended to them by a fellow boarder at the hotel. He then told them that though he was now passing under the name of Cave— "'Ah!' exclaimed Mr. Paul with a snort, which denoted a certain sort of surprised satisfaction. "'Ah, to be sure! Cave, of course! But I interrupt you. Pray proceed.' "'I see your point.' remarked Mr. Carless, with a smile. Well, although he was passing under the name of Cave, he was, in strict reality, the Lord Marketstoke, who disappeared from England many years ago, who was never heard of again, and whose death had been presumed. He was, therefore, the rightful Earl of Ellingham, and, as such, entitled to the estates. He proceeded to tell Methley and Woodlesford his adventures." He had, he said, never at any time from boyhood been on good terms with his father. There had always been mutual dislike. As he grew to manhood, his father had thwarted him in every conceivable way. He himself, as a young man, had developed radical and democratic ideas. This had caused a further widening of the breach. Eventually he had made up his mind to clear out of England altogether. He had a modest amount of money of his own, a few thousands which had been left him by his mother, so he took this and quietly disappeared. According to his own account, he became a good deal of a rolling stone, going to various out-of-the-way parts of the earth, and taking particular pains wherever he went to conceal his identity. He told these people, Methley and Woolsford, that he had at one time or another lived and traded in South Africa, India, China, Japan, and the Malay settlement. Finally, he had settled down in Australia. He had kept himself familiar with events at home, knew of his father's death, and he saw no end of advertisements for himself. He was aware that legal proceedings were taken as regards the presumption of his death and the administration of the estates. He was also aware of the death of his younger brother, and that title and estates were now in possession of his nephew his lordship there. In fact, he was very well up in the whole story, according to Methley and Woodlesford, said Mr. Carless with a smile, and Lord Ellingham believed that Methley and Woodlesford were genuinely convinced by him. Seemed so, anyway, both of them, agreed Lord Ellingham. However, continued Mr. Carless, Methley and Woodlesford, like you and I, Paul, are limbs of the law, they asked two very pertinent questions. First, why had he come forward after this long interval? Second, what evidence had he to support and prove his claim? Good, muttered Mr. Paul, and I'll be bound he had some excellent replies ready for them. He had, said Mr. Carless. He answered as regards the first question that of late things had not gone well with him. He was still comfortably off, but he had lost a lot of money in Australia through speculation. He replied to the second by producing certain papers and documents. "'Ah!' exclaimed Mr. Paul, nudging Viner. "'Now we're warming to it.' "'And according to what Methley and Whittlesford told Lord Ellingham,' continued Mr. Carless, "'these papers and documents are of a very convincing nature.' They said to his lordship frankly that they were greatly surprised by them. They had thought that this man might possibly be a bogus claimant, who had somehow gained a thorough knowledge of the facts he was narrating, but the papers he produced, which, he alleged, had never been out of his possession since his secret flight from London, 
were, well, staggering. After inspecting them, Methley and Woodlesford came to the conclusion that their caller really was what he claimed to be, the missing man. "'What were the papers?' demanded Mr. Paul. "'Oh,' replied Mr. Carless, looking at his client, "'letters, certificates, and the like, all, according to Methley and Woodlesford, excellent proofs of identity.' "'Did they show them to your lordship?' asked Mr. Paul. "'Oh, no, they only told me of them,' answered Lord Ellingham. "'They said, of course, that they would be shown to me or to Mr. Carless.' "'Aye,' muttered Mr. Paul, "'just so. Yes, and they will have to be shown.' "'That follows as a matter of course,' observed Mr. Carless. "'But now, Paul, we come to the real point of the case.' Methley and Woodlesford, having informed his lordship of all this when they called on him yesterday afternoon, then proceeded to tell him precisely what their client, the claimant, as we will now call him, really wanted, for he had been at some pains, considerable pains, to make himself clear on that point to them, and he desired them to make themselves clear to Lord Ellingham, whom he threw out referred to as his nephew, he had no desire, he told them, to recover his title nor the estates. He did not care a cent, his own phrase, for the title. He was now sixty years of age. The life he had lived had quite unfitted him for the positions and duties of an English nobleman. He wanted to go back to the country in which he had settled. But as title and estates really were his, he wanted his nephew, the present holder, to make him a proper payment, in consideration of the receipt of which he would engage to preserve the silence which he had already kept so thoroughly and effectively for thirty-five years. Eh? In plain language, said Mr. Paul, he wanted to be bought. Precisely, agreed Mr. Carless. Of course, Methley and Woodlesford didn't quite put it in that light. They put it that their client had no wish to disturb his nephew, but suggested kindly that his nephew should make him a proper payment out of his abundance. Mr. Paul turned to Lord Ellingham. Did they mention a sum to your lordship? he asked. Yes, replied Lord Ellingham, with a smile at Carless. They did, tentatively. How much? asked Mr. Paul. One hundred thousand pounds. On receipt of which, I suppose, observed Mr. Paul dryly, "'Nothing would ever be heard again of your lordship's long-lost uncle, "'the rightful owner of all that your lordship possesses?' "'Lord Ellingham laughed. "'So I gathered,' he answered. "'I wish I had been present when Methlin Woodlesford put forward that proposition,' "'exclaimed the old lawyer. "'Did they seem serious?' "'Oh, I think they were quite serious,' replied Lord Ellingham. "'They seemed so. "'They spoke of it as what they called a domestic arrangement.' "'Excellent phrase.' remarked Mr. Paul, and what said your lordship to their, or the claimant's, proposition? I told them that the matter was so serious that they and I must see my solicitors about it, answered Lord Ellingham, and I arranged to meet them here at one o'clock today. They quite agreed that that was the proper thing to do, and went away. Then you and Mr. Viner called. With, I understand, another extraordinary story— remarked Mr. Carless, the particulars of which his lordship has also told me. Now, Paul, what do you really say about all this? Mr. Paul smote his clenched right fist on the palm of his open left hand. I will tell you what I say, Carless, he exclaimed with emphasis. I say that whatever the papers and documents were which 
were produced by this man to Methley and Whittlesford. They were stolen from the body of John Ashton, who was foully murdered in Lonsdale Passage only last week. I'll stake all I have on that. Now then, did this claimant steal them? Did he murder John Ashton for them? No, a thousand times no, for no man would have been such a fool as to come forward with them so soon after his victim's death. This claimant doesn't know how or where or when they were obtained. He doesn't suspect that murder's in it. Now then, where did he get them? Who's at the back of him? Who to be plain? Who's marking a cat's paw of him? Find that out, and we shall know who murdered John Ashton. Viner, glancing at Lord Ellingham and at Mr. Carless, saw that Mr. Paul's words had impressed them greatly, the solicitor especially. He nodded sympathetically, and Mr. Paul went on speaking. "'Listen here, Carless,' he continued. "'Mr. Viner and I have been investigating this case as far as we could, largely to save a man whom we both believe to be absolutely innocent of murder. I have come to certain conclusions.' John Ashton, many years ago, fell in with the missing Lord Marketstoke, then living under the name of Wickham, in Australia, and they became close friends. At some time or other Wickham told Ashton the real truth about himself, and when he died, left his little daughter. Carlos looked sharply around. Ah! he exclaimed, so there's a daughter! There is a daughter, and her name is Avis a name borne by a good many women of the Cave Grey family, answered Mr. Paul with a significant glance at his fellow practitioner. But let me go on. Wickham left his daughter, her mother being dead, in Ashton's guardianship. She was then about six years of age. Ashton sent her to school here in England. About twelve or thirteen years later he came home and settled in Markendale Square. He brought Avis Wickham to live with him. He handed over to her a considerable sum which he said her father had left in his hands for her. And then, secretly, Ashton went down to Marketstoke and evidently made certain inquiries and investigations. Whether he was going to reveal the truth as to what I have just told you, we don't know. Probably he was. But he was murdered, and we all know when and where. And I say he was murdered for the sake of these very papers, which we now know were produced to Methley and Woodlesford by this claimant. Now then, Mr. Carless suddenly bent forward. A moment, Paul, he said. If this man Wickham really was the lost Lord Marketstoke, and he's dead, and he left a daughter, and the daughter's alive— Well? demanded Mr. Paul. Well? Why, then, of course, that daughter— said Mr. Carless slowly. That daughter is— A clerk opened the door and glanced at his employer. Mr. Methley and Mr. Woodlesford, sir, he announced, by appointment. End of chapter 17 The Claimant Chapter 18 of The Middle of Things This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Middle of Things by J. S. Fletcher. Chapter 18. Let Him Appear. The meeting between the solicitor suggested to Viner and to Lord Ellingham, who looked on curiously, while they exchanged formal greetings and explanations, a certain solemnity, each of them seemed to imply in look and manner, that this was an unusually grave occasion, and Mr. Carless, assuming the direction of things, 
became almost judicial in his deportment. "'Well, gentlemen,' he said, when they had all gathered about his desk, "'Lord Ellingham has informed me of what passed between you and himself at his house yesterday. In plain language, the client whom you represent claims to be the Lord Marketstoke who disappeared so completely many years ago, and therefore the rightful Earl of Ellingham. Now, a first question. Do you, as his legal advisers, believe in his claim?' "'Judging by the proofs with which he has furnished us, yes,' answered Methley. "'There seems to be no doubt of it.' "'We'll ask for these proofs presently,' remarked Mr. Carless. "'But now a further question. "'Your client, whom we'll now call the claimant, "'had, I understand, no desire to take up his rightful position, "'and suggests that the secret shall remain a secret, "'and that he shall be paid a hundred thousand pounds to hold his tongue?' "'If you put it that way, yes,' replied Methley. "'I don't know in what other way it could be put.' said Mr. Carless grimly. It's the plain truth. But now, if Lord Ellingham refuses that offer, does your client intend to commence proceedings? Our instructions are, yes, answered Methley. Very good, said Mr. Carless. Now then, what are these proofs? Methley turned to his partner, who immediately thrust a hand in his breast pocket and produced a long envelope. I have them here, said Woodlesford. Our client entrusted them to us, so that we might show them to Lord Ellingham if necessary. There are not many documents. They all relate to the period of our client's life before he left England. There are one or two important letters from his father, the seventh earl, two or three from his mother. There is also his mother's will. There is one letter from his younger brother, to whom he had evidently more than once announced his determination of leaving home for a considerable time. There are two letters from your own firm relating to some property which Lord Marketstoke disposed of before he left London. There is a schedule or memorandum of certain personal effects which he left in his rooms at Ellingham Hall. There is also a receipt from his bankers for a quantity of plate and jewellery which he had deposited with them before leaving. These things had been left him by his mother. There are also two documents which he seems to have considered it worth while to preserve all these years concluded Woodlesford with a smile. One is a letter informing him that he had been elected a member of the MCC. The other is his commission as a justice of the peace for the county of Buckinghamshire. As he detailed these things, Woodlesford laid each specified paper before Mr. Carless, and then they all gathered round and examined each exhibit. The various documents were somewhat faded with age, and the edges of some were worn as if from long folding and keeping in a pocket-book. Mr. Carless hastily ran his eye over them. "'Very interesting, gentlemen,' he remarked. "'But you know, as well as I do, that these things don't prove your client to be the missing Lord Marketstoke. A judge and jury would want a lot more evidence than that. The mere fact that your man is in possession of all these documents proves nothing whatever. He may have stolen them.' "'From what we have seen of our client, Mr. Carless,' observed Methley, with some stiffness of manner, "'there is no need for such a suggestion.' "'I dare say we shall all see a good deal of your client before this matter is settled, Mr. Methley,' retorted Mr. Carless, "'and even when I have seen a lot of him, I should still say the same. He may have stolen them. What else has he to prove that he is what he says he is?' "'He is fully conversant with his family history.' said Woodlesford. He can give a perfectly full and, so far as we can judge, 
accurate account of his early life and of his subsequent doings. He evidently knows all about Ellingham Hall, Marketstoke, and the surroundings. I think if you were to examine him on these points, you would find that his memory is surprisingly fresh. I have no doubt that it will come to his being examined on a great many points, and in much detail, said Mr. Carlos with a dry smile. Of course I shall be much interested in seeing him. You see, I remember the missing Lord Marketstoke very well indeed. He was often in here when I, as a lad of nineteen or twenty, was articled to my own father. And now, gentlemen, I'll ask you a question, and commend it to your intelligence and common sense. If your client is this man he claims to be, why didn't he come straight to Carless and Driver, whom he would remember well enough instead of going to Methley and Woodlesford? Come now!' Neither visitor answered this question, and Mr. Paul suddenly turned on them with another. "'Did your client mention to you that he knew Carless and Driver as the family solicitors?' he asked. "'No, I can't say that he did,' admitted Methley. "'After all, thirty-five years' absence, you know.' "'You said just now that his memory was surprisingly fresh,' interrupted Mr. Paul. "'Surely,' replied Whittlesford, "'surely you can't expect a man who has been away from England all that time to remember everything.' "'I should have expected Lord Marketstoke to have gone straight to the family solicitors anyway,' retorted Mr. Paul. "'Obvious thing to do, if his story is a true one.' Whittlesford glanced at his partner, and repossessing himself of the documents, began to arrange them in the envelope from which he had drawn them. We cannot, of course, say positively who our client is or who he is not, he said. All we can say is that he came to us with an introduction from an old client of ours whom we knew very well, and that his story seems to us to be quite credible. No doubt he can bring further proof. That he did not come here in the first instance. I'll tell you why I, personally, am very much surprised that he didn't, interrupted Mr. Carless. "'You told Lord Ellingham yesterday that your client saw no end of advertisements for him at the time of his father's death. Now we, Carless and Driver, sent out those advertisements. Our name was appended to every one of them wherever they appeared. Why then, when this man, if he is the real man, returned home, did he not come to us? For there are three persons in this office who—but wait!' He touched a bell. The clerk who had announced Methley and Whittlesford put his head in at the door. "'Ask Mr. Puddlethwaite to come here,' commanded Mr. Carless, "'and just find out if Mr. Driver is in his room. Portlethwaite can tell me when he comes.' An elderly grey-haired man presently appeared and closed the door behind him as if aware of the sacred nature of the proceedings. "'Mr. Driver is out, Mr. Carless,' he said. "'You wanted me, I think.' "'Our senior clerk,' observed Mr. Carless, by way of introduction. Porthlethwaite, you remember the Lord Marketstoke who disappeared some thirty-five years ago. Mr. Porthlethwaite smiled. Quite well, Mr. Carless, he answered, as if it were yesterday. He used to come here a good deal, you know. Do you think you'd know him again, Porthlethwaite, after all these years? asked Mr. Carless. Thirty-five years, mind. The elderly clerk smiled more assuredly than before. Then he looked significantly at a corner of the room, and Mr. Carless took the hint, and, rising from his chair, went aside with him. Portlethwaite whispered something in his employer's ear, and Carless suddenly laughed and nodded. "'To be sure, to be sure, I remember now,' he said aloud. "'Thank you, Portlethwaite, that's all. Well, gentlemen,' he continued, returning to his desk when the clerk had gone, 
I think the best thing you can do is to bring your client here. If he is the real and genuine article, he will, I am sure, be very glad indeed to meet three persons who knew him quite intimately in the old days. Mr. Driver, Mr. Portlethwaite, and myself. And I really don't know that there's any more to do or say. The two visitors rose, and Methley looked at Mr. Carless in a questioning fashion. "'Am I to go away with the impression that you believe our client to be an impostor?' he said quietly. "'Frankly, I do,' answered Mr. Carless. "'So do I,' exclaimed Mr. Paul. "'Emphatically so.' "'In that case,' said Methley, "'I see no advantage in bringing him here.' "'Not even anything to your own advantage,' suggested Mr. Carless, with a keen glance which passed from one partner to the other. "'You, as reputable practitioners of our profession, don't want to be mixed up with an impostor.' "'We should be very sorry to be mixed up in any way with an impostor, Mr. Carless,' said Methley. Mr. Carless pursed his lips for a moment as if he were never going to open them again. Then he suddenly relaxed them. "'I tell you what it is, gentlemen,' he said. "'I'm only anticipating matters in saying what I'm going to say, and I'm saying it because I feel sure you are quite sincere and genuine in this affair and are being deceived.' If you will bring your client here, there are three of us in this office who, as my old clerk has just reminded me, can positively identify him on the instant if he is the man he claims to be. Positively, I say, and at once, there. May one ask how? said Woodleford. No, exclaimed Mr. Carless. Bring him. Telephone an appointment, and we'll settle the matter as soon as he sets foot inside that door. May we tell him that? asked Methley. "'You can do as you like,' answered Mr. Carless. "'Between ourselves, I shouldn't. "'But I assure you, we can tell in one glance. "'That's a fact.' "'The two solicitors went away, "'and Viner, who had closely watched Methley during the interview, "'followed them out and hailed Methley in the corridor "'outside Mr. Carless's room. "'May I have a word with you?' he asked, drawing him aside. "'I don't know if you remember, "'but I saw you the other night in the parlour of that old tavern in Notting Hill. "'You came in while I was there.' "'I had some idea that I remembered your face when we were introduced just now,' said Mr. Methley. "'Yes, I think I do remember. You were sitting in a corner near the hearth.' "'Just so,' agreed Viner. "'And I heard you ask the landlord a question about a gentleman whom you used to meet there sometimes. You left some specimen cigars with the landlord for him.' "'Yes,' assented Methley wanderingly. "'You never knew that man's name,' continued Viner, "'nor who he was. Just so, so I gathered.' "'Then I'll tell you. There was a good reason why he had not been to that tavern for some nights. He was John Ashton, the man who was murdered in Lonsdale Passage.' Viner was watching his man with all the keenness of which he was capable, and he saw that this announcement fell on Methley as an absolute surprise. He started as only a man can start who has astounding news given to him suddenly. "'God bless me!' he exclaimed. "'You don't mean it. Of course I know about that murder, our own district. And I saw Ashton's picture in the paper. But then there are so many elderly men of that type, broad features, trimmed gray beard. Dear me, dear me, a very pleasant, genial fellow. I am astonished, Mr. Viner.' Viner resolved on a bold step. He wouldn't take it without consulting Mr. Paul or anybody. He drew Methley further aside. "'Mr. Methley,' he said, "'you're a man of honour, and I trust you with a secret, to be kept until I release you from the obligation of secrecy. 
I have reasons for getting at the truth about Ashton's murder. So has Mr. Paul. He and I have been making investigations and inquiries, and we are convinced. We are positive that these papers which your partner now has in his pocket were stolen from Ashton's dead body. That, in fact, Ashton was murdered for the possession of them. And I tell you, for your own sake, find out who this client of yours is. That he was the actual murderer, I don't believe for a second. He is probably a mere cat's paw. But who's behind him? If you can do anything to find out the truth, do it. That Methley was astonished beyond belief was so evident that Viner was now absolutely convinced of his sincerity. He stood staring open-mouthed for a moment, then he glanced at Woodlesford, who was waiting at some distance along the corridor. "'Mr. Viner,' he said, "'you amaze me. Listen, my partner is as sound and honest a fellow as there is in all London. Let me tell him this. I'll engage for his secrecy. If you'll consent to that, I'll see that, without a word from us as to why, this man who claims to be the missing Lord Marketstoke is brought here.' If what you say is true, we are not going to be partners to a crime. Let me tell Woodlesford. I'll answer for him. Viner considered this proposition for a moment. Very well, he said at last. Tell him. I shall trust you both. Remember, it's between the three of us. I shan't say a word to Paul, nor to Carlos. You know there's a man's life at stake. Hyde's. Hyde is as innocent as I am. He's an old school fellow of mine. I understand, said Methley, very well. "'Trust to me, Mr. Viner.' He went off with a reassuring nod, and Viner returned to Mr. Carlos' room. The three men he had left there were deep in conversation, and as he entered, Mr. Carlos smote his hand at the desk before him. "'This is certain,' he exclaimed. "'We must have this Miss Avis Wickham here, at once.'" End of chapter 18 Let Him Appear Chapter Nineteen of the Middle of Things. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Middle of Things by J. S. Fletcher. Chapter Nineteen. Under Examination. Mr. Paul nodded assent to this proposition and rose from his chair. It's the only thing to do, he said. We must get to the bottom of this as quickly as possible. Whether Miss Wickham can tell us much or little, we must know what she can tell. Let us all meet here again at three o'clock. I will send one of my clerks to fetch her. But let us be clear on one point. Are we to tell this young lady what our conclusions are regarding herself? Your conclusions? said Mr. Carless with a sly smile. We know nothing yet, you know, Paul. "'My conclusions, then,' assented Mr. Paul, "'are we—' Lord Ellingham quietly interrupted the old lawyer. "'Pardon me, Mr. Paul,' he said, "'but before we go any further, do you mind telling me briefly what your conclusions really are?' "'I will tell your lordship in a few words,' answered Mr. Paul readily. "'Wrong or right, my conclusions are these.' From certain investigations which Mr. Viner and I have made since this affair began, with the murder of Ashton, and from certain evidence which we have unearthed, I believe that Ashton's friend Wickham, the father of the girl we are going to produce this afternoon, was in reality your lordship's uncle, the missing Lord Marketstoke. I believe that Ashton came to England in order to prove this, 
and that he was probably about to begin proceedings when he was murdered, for the sake of those papers which we have just seen. And I believe, too, that we have not seen all the papers which were stolen from his dead body. What was produced to us just now by Methley and Woodlesford was a selection. The probability is that there are other and more important papers in the hands of the murderer, whose cat's paw or accomplice this claimant, whoever he may be, is, I believe, concluded Mr. Paul with emphasis, that my conclusions will be found to be correct ones, based on indisputable fact. Lord Ellingham looked from one solicitor to the other. Then, he said with something of a smile, if Wickham was really my uncle, Lord Marketstoke, and this young lady you tell me of is his daughter, what definitely is my position? Mr. Paul looked at Mr. Carless, and Mr. Carless shook his head. If Mr. Paul's theory is correct, he said, and mind you, Paul, it will take a lot of proving. If Mr. Paul's theory is correct, the position, my lord, is this. The young lady we hear of is Countess of Ellingham in her own right. She would not be the first woman to succeed to the title. There was a Countess of Ellingham in the time of George the Third. She would, of course, have to prove her claim before the House of Lords, if made good. She succeeds to titles and estates. That's the plain English of it, and upon my honour, concluded Mr. Carless, it's one of the most extraordinary things I ever heard of. This other affair is nothing to it. Lord Ellingham again inspected the legal countenances. I see nothing at all improbable about it, he said. We may as well face that fact at once. I will be here at three o'clock, Mr. Carless. I confess I should like to meet my cousin, if she really is that. Your lordship takes it admirably, exclaimed Mr. Carless. But really, well, I don't know. However, we shall see. But upon my honour, it's most odd. One claimant disposed of, another, a more formidable one, comes on. But we have not disposed of the first, have we? suggested Lord Ellingham. I don't anticipate any trouble in that quarter, answered Mr. Carless. As I said to those two who have just gone out, send or bring the man here, and we'll tell in one minute if he's what he claims to be. But how? asked Lord Ellingham. You seem very certain. Dead certain, asserted Mr. Carless. He looked round his collars and laughed. I may as well tell you, he said. Portlethwaite drew me aside to remind me of it. The real Lord Marketstoke, if he were alive, could easily be identified. He lost a finger when a mere boy. "'Ah!' exclaimed Mr. Paul. "'Good! Excellent! Best bit of evidence I've heard of. Hang this claimant! Now we can tell if Wickham really was Lord Marketstoke. If necessary, we can have his body exhumed and examined.' "'It was a shooting accident.' continued Mr. Carless. He was out shooting in the park at Ellingham when a boy of fourteen or fifteen. He was using an old muzzle-loading gun. It burst, and he lost his second finger, the right hand. It was, of course, very noticeable. Now that small but very important fact is most likely not known to Methley and Woolsford clients, but it's known to Driver and to Portlethwaite and to me, and now to all of you. If this man comes here, look at his right hand. If he possesses his full complement of fingers, well. Mr. Carless ended with a significant grimace, and Mr. Paul, nodding assent, 
return to the question which he was putting when Lord Ellingham interrupted him. "'Now let us settle the point I raised,' he said. "'Are we to tell Miss Wickham what my conclusions are, or are we to leave her in ignorance until we get proof that they are correct, or incorrect?' answered Mr. Carless with an admonitory laugh. "'I should say at present, tell her nothing. Let us find out all we can from her. There are several questions I should like to ask her, myself, arising out of what you have told us. Leave all the rest until a later period.' "'If your theory is correct, Paul, it can be established. If it isn't, the girl may as well be left in ignorance that you ever raised it.' "'Until three o'clock, then,' said Mr. Paul.' Three o'clock found the old lawyer and Viner pacing the pavement of Lincoln's Inn Fields in expectation of Miss Wickham's arrival. She came at last in the taxicab which Mr. Paul had sent for her, and her first words on stepping out of it were of surprise and inquiry. "'What is it, Mr. Paul?' she demanded as she shook hands with her two squires. "'More questions. What's it all about?' Mr. Paul nudged Viner's arm. "'My dear young lady,' he answered, in grave and fatherly fashion. You must bear in mind that a man's life is in danger. We are doing all we can to clear that unfortunate young fellow Hyde of the dreadful charge which has been brought against him, and to do that we must get to know all we can about your late guardian, you know. "'I know so little about Mr. Ashton,' said Miss Wickham, looking apprehensively at the building towards which she was being conducted. "'Where are you taking me?' "'To a solicitor's office, friends of mine,' answered Mr. Paul. "'Carless and Driver, excellent people. "'Mr. Carless wants to ask you a few questions "'in the hope that your answers will give us a little more light "'on Ashton's history.' "'You needn't be afraid of Carless,' he added, "'as they began to climb the stairs. "'Carless is quite a pleasant fellow, "'and he has with him a very amiable young gentleman, "'Lord Ellingham, of whom you needn't be afraid either.' "'And why is Lord Ellingham, whoever he may be, there?' inquired Miss Wickham. "'Lord Ellingham is also interested in your late guardian,' replied Mr. Paul. "'In fact, we are all interested. So now rub up your memory and answer Mr. Carless's questions.' Viner remained in the background, quietly watching, while Mr. Paul effected the necessary introductions. He was at once struck by what seemed to him an indisputable fact between Lord Ellingham and Miss Wickham. There was an unmistakable family likeness, and he judged from the curious scrutinizing look which Mr. Carless gave the two young people as they shook hands that the same idea struck him. Mr. Carless wound up that look in a significant glance at Mr. Paul, to whom he suddenly muttered a few words which Viner caught. "'By Jove!' he whispered. "'I shouldn't wonder if you're right.' Then he placed Miss Wickham in an easy chair on his right hand and cast a preliminary benevolent glance on her. "'Mr. Paul,' he began, "'has told us of your relationship with the late Mr. Ashton. You always regarded him as your guardian?' "'He was my guardian,' answered Miss Wickham. "'My father left me in his charge.' "'Just so. Now, have you any recollection of your father?' "'Only very vague recollections. I was scarcely six, I think, when he died. What do you remember about him?' "'I think he was a tall, handsome man. I have some impression that he was. 
I think, too, that he had a fair complexion and hair, but it's all very vague. Do you remember where you lived? Only that it was in a very big town. Melbourne, of course. I have recollections of busy streets. I remember, too, that when I left there, it was very, very hot weather. Do you remember Mr. Ashton at that time? Oh, yes, I remember Mr. Ashton. I had nobody else, you see. My mother had died when I was quite little. I have no recollection whatever of her. I remember Mr. Ashton's house, and that he used to buy me lots of toys. His house was in a quiet part of the town, and he had a big shady garden. How long, so far as you remember, did you live with Mr. Ashton there? Not very long, I think. He told me that I was to go to England to school. For a little time before we sailed, I lived with Mrs. Ronscope, with whom I came to England. She was very kind to me. I was very fond of her. And who was Mrs. Roscombe? I didn't know at the time, of course. I only knew she was Mrs. Roscombe. But Mr. Ashton told me not long before his death who she was. She was the widow of some government official, and she was returning to England in consequence of his death. So she took charge of me and brought me over. She used to visit me regularly at school every week, and I used to spend my holidays with her until she died. Ah, said Mr. Carless, she is dead. She died two years ago, answered Miss Wickham. I wish she had been living, observed Mr. Carless with a glance at Mr. Paul. I should have liked to see Mrs. Roscombe. Well, he continued, turning to Miss Wickham, so Mrs. Roscombe brought you to England to school. What school? Ryden School. Ryden. That's one of the most expensive schools in England, isn't it? I don't know. I... perhaps it is. I happen to know it is, said Mr. Carless dryly. Two of my clients have daughters there now. I've seen their bills. Do you know who paid yours? No, she answered. I don't know. Mr. Ashton, I suppose. You had everything you wanted, I dare say. Clothes, pocket money, and so on? I've always had everything I wanted, replied Miss Wickham. And you were at right in twelve years? Except for the holidays, yes. You must be a very learned young lady, suggested Mr. Carless. Miss Wickham looked round the circle of attentive faces. I can play tennis and hockey very well, she said, smiling a little, and I wasn't bad at cricket the last season or two. We played cricket there, but I'm not up to much at anything else except that I can talk French decently. Physical culture, eh? observed Mr. Carless, smiling. Very well. Now then, in the end, Mr. Ashton came home to England, and of course came to see you, and in due course you left school and came to his house in Markendale Square, where he got a Mrs. Killenhall to look after you. All that correct? Yes. Well, then, I think from what Mr. Paul tells me, Mr. Ashton handed over a lot of money to you and told you it had been left to you, or left in his charge for you, by your father. That is correct, too? Very well. Now, did Mr. Ashton never tell you anything much about your father? No, he never did, beyond telling me that my father was an Englishman who had gone out to Australia and settled there. He never told me anything. But— here Miss Wickham paused and hesitated for a while. I have an idea, she continued in the end, that he meant to tell me something, what I, of course, don't know. He once or twice hinted that he would tell me something, some day. You didn't press him, 
suggested Mr. Carless. "'I don't think I am naturally inquisitive,' replied Miss Wickham. "'I certainly did not press him. I knew he'd tell me whatever it was in his own way.' "'One or two other questions,' said Mr. Carless. "'Do you know who your mother was?' "'Only that she was some one whom my father met in Australia.' "'Do you know what her maiden name was?' "'No, only her Christian name. That was Catherine. She and my father are buried together.' "'Ah!' exclaimed Mr. Carless. "'That is something else I was going to ask. You know where they are buried?' "'Oh, yes, because before we sailed Mrs. Roscombe took me to the churchyard or cemetery to see my father's and mother's grave. I remembered that perfectly. Her own husband was buried there, too, close by. I remember how we both cried.' Mr. Carless suddenly pointed to the ornament which Miss Wickham was wearing. "'Will you take that off and let me look at it?' he asked. "'Thank you,' he said, as she somewhat surprisedly obeyed. "'I believe,' he continued, as he quietly passed the ornament to Lord Ellingham, "'that Mr. Ashton gave you this and told you it had belonged to your father. Just so.' "'Well,' he concluded, handing the ornament back, "'I think that's all. Much obliged to you, Miss Wickham. You won't understand all this, but you will later. Now one of my clerks will get you a car, and we'll escort you down to it.' "'No,' said Lord Ellingham, promptly jumping to his feet. "'Allow me. I'm youngest. If Miss Wickham will let me.' The two young people went out of the room together, and the three men left behind looked at each other. There was a brief and significant silence. "'Well, Carless,' said Mr. Paul at last, "'how now?' "'Pon my honour," answered Mr. Carless, "'I shouldn't wonder if you're right.' End of chapter 19 Under Examination Chapter Twenty of the Middle of Things. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Middle of Things by J. S. Fletcher. Chapter Twenty. Surprising Readiness. Mr. Paul made a gesture which seemed to denote a certain amount of triumphant self-satisfaction. "I'm sure I'm right," he exclaimed. "'You'll find out that I'm right. "'But there's a tremendous lot to do, Carless. "'If only that unfortunate man, Ashton, had lived, "'he could have cleared this matter up at once. "'I feel convinced that he possessed papers "'which would have proved this girl's claim beyond dispute. "'Those papers, of course.' "'Now what particular papers are you thinking of?' "'interrupted Mr. Carless. "'Well,' replied Mr. Paul, "'such papers as proofs of her father's marriage "'and of her own birth.' According to what she told us just now, her father was married in Australia, and she herself was born there. There must be documentary proof of that. Her father was probably married under his assumed name of Wickham, observed Mr. Carless. You'll have to prove that Wickham and Lord Marketstoke were identical, for one and the same person. The fact is, Paul, if this girl's claim is persisted in, there'll have to be a very searching inquiry made in Australia. However, much I may feel that your theory may be, probably is, right. I should have to advise my client, Lord Ellingham, to insist on the most complete investigation. To be sure, to be sure, assented Mr. Paul, that's absolutely necessary. But my own impression is that as we get into the secret of Ashton's murder, as I make no doubt we shall, there will be more evidence forthcoming. 
Now, as regards this man, whoever he is, who claims to be the missing Lord Marketstoke? At that moment a clerk entered the room and glanced at Mr. Carless. "'Telephone message from Methley and Woodlesford, sir,' he announced. "'Mr. Methley's compliments, and if agreeable to you, he can bring his client on to see you this afternoon, at once, if convenient.' Mr. Carless looked at Mr. Paul, and Mr. Paul nodded a silent assent. "'Tell Mr. Methley it's quite agreeable and convenient,' answered Mr. Carless. "'I shall be glad to see them both at once.' "'Hm,' he muttered when the clerk had withdrawn. "'Somewhat sudden, eh, Paul? You might almost call it suspicious alacrity. Evidently the gentleman has no fear of meeting us.' "'You may be quite certain, Carless, if my theory about the whole thing is a sound theory, that the gentleman will have no fear of meeting anybody, not even a judge and jury,' answered Mr. Paul sardonically. "'If I apprehend things rightly, he'll have been very carefully coached and prepared.' "'You think there's a secret conspiracy behind all this?' suggested Mr. Carless. "'With this claimant as Cat's Paul, well tutored to his task?' "'I do,' affirmed Mr. Paul. "'Emphatically I do.' "'Aye, well,' said Mr. Carless, "'don't forget what I told you about the missing finger, middle finger of the right hand, and I'll have Driver in here and Portlethwaite too. We'll see if he knows which is which of the three of us. I'll go and prepare them.' He returned presently with his partner, a quiet elderly man. A few minutes later Portlethwaite, evidently keenly interested, joined them. They and Mr. Paul began to discuss certain legal matters connected with the immediate business, and Viner purposely withdrew to a corner of the room, intent on silently watching whatever followed on the arrival of the visitors. A quarter of an hour later Methley was shown into the room, and the five men gathered there turned with one accord to look at his companion, a tall, fresh-coloured, slightly grey-haired man of distinctly high-bred appearance who, Viner saw at once, was much more self-possessed and assured in manner than any of the men who rose to meet him. "'My client, Mr. Cave, who claims to be Earl of Ellingham,' said Methley, by way of introduction. "'Mr. Carr?' But the other men smiled quietly and immediately assumed a lead. "'There is no need of introduction, Mr. Methley,' he said. "'I remember all three gentlemen perfectly. Mr. Carless, Mr. Driver, and, yes, to be sure, Mr. Portlethwaite. I have a good memory for faces.' He bowed to each man as he named him, and smiled again. "'Whether these gentlemen remember me as well as I remember them,' he remarked, "'is another question.' "'May I offer you a chair?' said Mr. Carless. The visitor bowed, sat down, and took off his gloves, and in the silence which followed, Viner saw that the eyes of driver, Carless, Paul, and Portlethwaite were all steadily directed on the claimant's right hand. He himself turned to it, too, with no small interest. The next instant he was conscious that an atmosphere of astonishment and surprise had been set up in that room. For the middle finger of the man's right hand was missing. Viner felt, rather than saw, that the three solicitors and the elderly clerk were exchanging glances of amazement, and he fancied that Mr. Carless's voice, which had sounded cold and noncommittal as he offered the visitor a seat, was somewhat uncertain when he turned to address him. "'You claim, sir, to be the Lord Marketstoke who disappeared so many years ago?' he asked, eyeing the claimant over. "'I claim to be exactly what I am, Mr. Carless,' answered the visitor with another ready and pleasant smile. "'I hope your memory will come to your aid.' 
"'When a man has disappeared absolutely for something like thirty-five years,' remarked Mr. Carless, "'those whom he has left behind may well be excused if their memories don't readily respond to sudden demands. But I should like to ask you some questions. Did you see the advertisements which were issued broadcast at the time of the seventh Earl of Ellingham's death?' "'Yes, and several English and colonial papers,' answered the claimant. "'Why did you not reply to them?' At that time I still persevered in my intention of never again having anything to do with my old life. I had no desire at all to come forward and claim my rights, so I took no notice of your advertisements. And since then, of late, to be exact, you have changed your mind, suggested Mr. Carless dryly. To a certain extent only, replied the visitor, whose calm assurance was evidently impressing the legal practitioners around him. I have already told Mr. Methley and his partner, Mr. Whittlesford, that I have no desire to assume my title nor to require possession of the estates, which are certainly mine. I have lived a free life too long to wish for what I should come in for if I established my claim, but I have a right to a share in the property which I quite willingly resign to my nephew. In plain language, said Mr. Carless, if you are paid a certain considerable sum of money, you will vanish again into the obscurity from whence you came. Am I right in that supposition? I don't like your terminology, Mr. Carless, answered the visitor with a slight frown. I have not lived in obscurity, and— If you are what you claim to be, sir, you are Earl of Ellingham, said Mr. Carless firmly, and I may as well tell you at once that if you prove to us that you are, your nephew, who now holds title and estates, will at once relinquish both. There will be no bargaining. It is all or nothing. Our client, whom we know as Earl of Ellingham, is not going to traffic— if you are what you claim to be, you are head of the family and must take your place. We could have told you that once for all if you had come to us in the first instance, remarked Mr. Driver. Any other idea is out of the question. It seems to me most remarkable that such a notion as that which you suggest should ever enter your head, sir. If you are Earl of Ellingham, you are. And that reminds me, said Mr. Carless, that there is another question I should like to ask. Why, knowing that we have been legal advisers to your family for several generations, did you not come straight to us instead of going, Mr. Methley, I am sure, will pardon me, to a firm of solicitors which, as far as I know, has never had any connection with it? I thought it best to employ absolutely independent advice, replied the visitor, and I still think I was right. For example, you evidently do not admit my claim. We certainly admit nothing at present declared Mr. Carless with a laugh. It would be absurd to expect it. The proofs which your solicitor showed us this morning are no proofs at all. That those papers belong to the missing Lord Marketstoke, there is no doubt, but your possession of them at present does not prove that you are Lord Marketstoke or Lord Ellingham. They may have been stolen. The claimant rose from his chair with a good deal of dignity. He glanced at Methley. I do not see that any good can come of this interview, Mr. Methley, he remarked in quiet, level tones. I am evidently to be treated as an impostor. In that case, he bowed ceremoniously to the men gathered round Mr. Carless's desk. I think it best to withdraw. Therewith he walked out of the room, and Methley, after a quiet word with Carless, followed to be stopped in the corridor for a second time that day by Viner, who had hurried after him. I am not going to express any opinion on what we have just heard whispered Viner, drawing Methley aside. "'But in view of what I told you this morning, there's something I want you to do for me.' "'Yes,' said Methley. "'What?' "'That unlucky fellow Hyde, who is on remand, is to be brought before the magistrate to-morrow morning,' answered Viner. 
get him, this claimant, there, to attend the court as a spectator, go with him, use any argument you like, but get him there. I've a reason which I'll explain later. I'll do my best, promised Methley, and I've an idea of what's on your mind. You want to find out if Hyde can recognize him as the man whom he met at the Markendale Square end of Lonsdale Passage. Well, that is my idea, assented Viner, so get him there. Methley nodded and turned away. Then he turned back and pointed at Carlos's room. "'What do they really think in there?' he whispered. "'Tell me, between ourselves.' "'That he's an impostor, and that there's a conspiracy,' replied Viner. Methley nodded again, and Viner went back. The men whom he had left were talking excitedly. "'It was the only course to take,' Mr. Carlos was declaring. "'Uncompromising hostility. We could do no other.' You saw quite well that he was all for money. I will engage that we could have settled with him for one half of what he asked. But who is he? The middle finger of his right hand is gone, said Mr. Paul, who had been very quiet and thoughtful during this recent proceedings. Remember that, Carlos. A most extraordinary coincidence, exclaimed Mr. Carlos excitedly. I don't care two pence what anybody says. We all know that the most surprising coincidences do occur. "'Nothing but a coincidence. I assert—what is it, Portlethwaite?' The elderly clerk had been manifesting a strong desire to get in a word, and he now rapped his senior employer's elbow. "'Mr. Carless,' he said earnestly, "'you know that before I came to you, now nearly forty years ago, I was a medical student. You know, too, you and Mr. Driver, why I gave up medicine for the law. But I haven't forgotten all of that I learned in the medical schools and hospitals.' "'Well, Portlethwaite,' demanded Mr. Carless, "'what is it? You've some idea?' "'Gentlemen,' answered the elderly clerk, "'I was always particularly interested in anatomy in my medical student days. "'I've been looking attentively at what I could see of that man's injured finger "'since he sat down at that desk. "'And I'll lay all I have that he lost the two joints of that finger "'within the last three months. "'The scar over the stump had not long been healed. That's a fact.' Mr. Carless looked round with a triumphant smile. "'There!' he exclaimed. "'What did I tell you? Coincidence? Nothing but coincidence!' But Portlethwaite shook his head. "'Why not say design, Mr. Carless?' he said meaningly. "'Why not say design? If this man or the people who are behind him knew that the real Lord Marketstoke had a finger missing, what easier in view of the stake they're playing for than to remove one of this man's fingers? Design, sir, design, all part of the scheme!' The elderly clerk's listeners looked at each other. "'I'll tell you what it is,' exclaimed Mr. Paul with sudden emphasis. "'The more we see and hear of this affair, the more I'm convinced that it is, as Portlethwaite says, a conspiracy. You know, that fellow who has just been here was distinctly taken aback when you, Carlos, informed him that it was going to be a case of all or nothing. He or the folk behind him evidently expected that they'd be able to effect a money settlement.' Now I should say that the real reason of his somewhat hasty retirement was that he wanted to consult his principal, or principals. Did you notice that he was not really affronted by your remark? Not he. His personal dignity wasn't ruffled a bit. He was taken aback. He's gone off to consult. Carlos, you ought to have that man carefully shadowed, to see where and to whom he goes. Good idea, muttered Mr. Driver. We might see to that. "'I can put a splendid man on to him at once, Mr. Carless,' remarked Portlethwaite, "'if you could furnish me with his address.' 
Methley and Woodlesford know it, said Mr. Carless. Um, yes, that might be very useful. Ring Methley's up, Portlethwaite, and ask if they would oblige us with the name of Mr. Cape's hotel, some residential hotel in Lancaster Gate, I believe. Mr. Paul and Viner went away, ruminating over the recent events, and walked to the old lawyer's offices in Bedford Row. Mr. Paul's own particular clerk met them as they entered. "'There's Mr. Roland Perkwhite of the Middle Temple in your room, sir,' he said, addressing his master. "'You may remember him, sir. We've briefed him once or twice in some small cases. Mr. Perkwhite wants to see you about this Ashton affair. He says he has something to tell you.' Mr. Paul looked at Viner and beckoned him to follow. "'Here a little and there a little,' he whispered. "'What are we going to hear this time?' End of chapter 20 Surprising Readiness Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.